turn to Romans chapter 5, and I want to bring a sermon entitled, Our Representative, Romans chapter 5, verses 12 through 7, or 12 through 21. We've come to a crucial juncture in this letter that Paul has written to the Romans, and if we aren't careful, we could see this passage as an intrusion, an unnecessary intrusion into the teaching of Paul concerning the relationship that exists between justification, which he's been telling us about since 118, chapter 1, verse 18, all the way down till now, the relationship that's there with our ongoing and continuing sanctification. We could see this paragraph as an interruption, as something that, you know, why did Paul even bring this up? Couldn't he have made his point another way? But that would be a grave error, in my opinion. The paragraph we're looking at today, and for the next two Sundays, is one of the keys to understanding the miracle of salvation. And that's right. If you're one that longs to see a miracle, if you are in Christ, every morning that you wake up and look in the mirror, you are staring at a miracle. Salvation is the most repeated worldwide phenomena of a miracle that has ever been done. Paul has just spent the first chapters all the way, the first of this chapter in verse five, uh, chapter 5, verses 1 through 11, detailing for us that our hope is secure in Jesus Christ. We have hope. He says, in the glory of God. And character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame, he says. Because the love of God has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit that is in us, all of us. Not just a special class of second baptism Christians. All Christians are possessed with the Spirit of God. And all Christians' hope cannot be put to shame. That's what he says. And then he goes on to say at the end of the passage, which we looked at last week, that we celebrate the hope that we have because we've been reconciled to God the Father by Jesus Christ, His Son. We've been reconciled. Grace Fellowship, we should be the most joyful people on earth because we have life and this life is in Christ and our hope is in Him and we cannot be put to shame. We cannot be disappointed. We should be the most joyful people in the world because of this reality. And so you might ask, Carlton, if all this is true, then why do I struggle in sin so much? Why does my life on a daily basis still, to this day, struggle so mightily that at times I'm almost tempted to lose hope? And see, I think that's why Paul wrote our paragraph we're looking at for the next three weeks. He wants you. He wants me. He wanted those Romans to understand that you are in the struggle and the fight of your life. Before you became a Christian, you were not in a fight. Now that you are a Christian, you've put on the boxing gloves, you've climbed in the ring, and it is a fight to the death. 
That's why he wrote this paragraph. So we would know that though we have this great hope, we are in a massive struggle. A massive struggle against sin. It's a real concern for most Christians. And it doesn't get any better, not to discourage you, the longer you're a Christian, it doesn't get any better. I mean, I used to think that as a fool. As most young people, myself included, we're fools. And we think, well, it's just a matter of maturity. And I get mature and then I won't sin. No, <laughs> not to burst your bubble, but your sin, though it may become lo- less grotesque because you are more refined and you don't pursue after things or you just, mainly it's probably just to further discourage you. We just don't have the energy anymore for all that. <laughs> it's not as fun as it used to be because bedtime's at nine. I mean, you know. And, and, and though that's a reality, listen to me, what's, what creeps into your mind at that point is that it's not just the things I've been doing out there, it's the things that live inside of me. And it gets worse. And it can drive you to despair. The longer you live, the more you realize that the indwelling sin sickness that is inside of us seems to not be going away. It seems that we're making little progress in our fight. We know that we have new life in Christ. But the reality of our day-to-day life doesn't often reflect the joyful pursuit of Jesus that we read about in the New Testament. I'll never forget. I became a Christian. I had lived a quote-unquote Christian life my whole life. Raised in church, raised in a Christian family, raised in a Christian school. I I, I tell people I was around Christianity eight days a week. There was no escaping it. And I've acted the act. And I went off to college. And I was confronted with Ephesians chapter 2. And I won't go into all that, but I was confronted because I realized I was dead in my sin. Having lived in this great Christian environment, I was dead in my sin. And I cried out to God and He saved me. And I know you're going to laugh. There were two books that I read to begin my Christian journey. One was Desiring God by John Piper. It's the first book I read outside of the Bible as a Christian. Now you know why he's my living hero. It was transformational for me, and it has been for many of you. The second one might shock you. The second book I read was by John Owen called Indwelling Sin. It equally impacted me. If you go in my office, I have John Owen's life works, and I have not read them all. It's like, I don't know, 17 volumes or something. He is, in my opinion, the greatest theologian to ever live in the English-speaking world. And it was this reality that he was dealing with. That as Christians, this indwelling sin is so close to the heart of who we are still. That it just will not go away. It's a fight every single day. And so many of us are waking up thinking we're fighting a war against a habit. You know what I'm saying? Like, well, if I could just stop screaming at my kids, you know, I'd be a better person, a better dad. So you choke back all the screaming, but the thoughts are still there, right? The thoughts are still there, and every now and then they pop out. And then you say, I'm sorry for screaming at you. But you still have these things going on in you. And you're fighting the symptoms of sin 
You're not fighting sin. Because that's a personal match that you're having. You don't want to go that deep. It's easier to stay on the surface. You know, you know some of us are fighting this war as if the little hand-to-hand combat that we're having with lust or lying or a bad thought here or there is the problem. When the reality is we are the problem at the depth of who we are in our natural self. That's the problem. We can't get loose from it. Its grip seems to be tight. And day to day we look at our life and we see very little progress. If your view of sin is shallow, then your hope will feel insecure, church. That's why this passage is so needed. If all you ever look at is the surface of your sin, you will never have any hope in this world. This is what I mean. If you view sin as merely a bad choice you make from time to time, then you will miss the deep reservoir of remaining sin that is the old man that lives in you. Some of us are so good at guarding the surface That we're not dealing with the inside. And Paul refuses to let that happen. He says we should be rejoicing in the reconciliation we have in Jesus. Therefore, and then he goes off talking about this indwelling natural state that is in us. This is what Paul wants to help us see in this paragraph. Every human is under the headship of one of two men. Every human. We are represented by them. And their work is our work. If you're listening to this sermon, then you are either under the representation of Adam or you have been transferred by the grace of God to the representation of Jesus Christ, the second Adam. Our fight against sin can never take our hope when we understand that we are represented by Christ before the Father. The new life we have in Christ is under the reign of righteousness and the fight against the old man under the representation of Adam, is a fight that has been and will be won by our Savior. Once you realize that, you hope even in the midst of your sin struggle. I remember thinking shallow thoughts as a young pastor like, well, that person's struggling with sin so much, they're probably not a Christian. And then it dawned on me. It dawned on me. Like a bolt of lightning. If they weren't Christians, they wouldn't have a struggle. They'd just be living in it. The fact that their heart's broken over it. The fact that they see it as poison. The fact that even as they do it, they hate it. That is the evidence of being under the reign of Christ in His righteousness forever. That's the evidence. Not the absence of struggle, but the ongoing fight. I love MMA. You may think less of me. That's okay. I pay for it every now and then. I love it so much. And you know what I love more than anything? Is when they get those dudes in a rear naked choke and there is no hope. It's over. Their head's turning purple and they're fighting to tap. And they will tap the air. (laughs) They'll do this because tapping means stop. And they'll tap the air literally to get out of that chokehold. And what I'm telling you, our hope is that Jesus Christ has your old man in a chokehold and he will win. He will win. You hear what I'm telling you? That's our hope, church. And when you recognize the battle for what it really is, man, you're filled 
with joy. And you say, oh, Jesus, just keep me going forward. Just keep me going forward one more day. Just one more day. So if you've been fighting sin and you've been discouraged and losing hope, I want to tell you that fight is the evidence that Jesus loves you and he gave himself for you and he has put you in his kingdom of light and he will not lose. He cannot lose. He's already won. I'm so excited. <laughs> Trying so hard not to just stop and just, just weep. I mean, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and, sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given. But sin isn't accounted to us where there is no law. Or it's not reckoned where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. But the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation, but the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. For if because of one man's trespass death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification in life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. First of all, we see that we're all born in sin because we are all under the headship of Adam. We are all born in sin because we're all under the headship of Adam. The paragraph begins with, therefore, which again, I say it again, it connects us to Paul's previous thought. We are to understand that reconciliation is a matter to rejoice over because we are naturally sinners. We, rec we rejoice in hope of reconciliation because we're naturally sinners and we needed reconciliation and now God's given it to us. That's what Paul says in verse 12. This is a fact that many in our day, as well as the, throughout Christian history, have struggled to accept. Let me say it again. We are all born sinners. We do not simply become sinners when we make a willful choice to disobey God. This is taught throughout the scriptures, but let, let, let me let you hear it from the word of the Lord together. Let's, let's listen to this. Genesis 5, 1 through 3 says this. This is the book of the generations of Adam. When God created man, he made him in the likeness of God, male and female. He created them and he blessed them and named them man. Now the Hebrew word for man is, as many of you know, Adam. Okay? Man, when they were created. When Adam had lived 130 years. He fathered a son in his own likeness after his image and named him Seth. Notice how Moses 
the writer of Genesis, emphasizes that Adam was created in the likeness of God. When God made Adam in Genesis chapter 1 and 2, we see clearly he made him in, his own, in God's image, after his likeness. He was called man, which in Hebrew means Adam, to signify that without a change in their standing before God, their children would continue to be in the likeness of God. The reason he named Adam, Adam, was to represent all humans. He called him mankind. That's what he called him. And so he was created in the image of God, and if he doesn't sin, when he has little babies, he and Eve, those babies will be born in the image of God. And their babies, and their babies all the way through time. But there was a change, and that change happened because Adam sinned. That's what Romans 5.12 says. Because the one man sinned, sin entered the world of humanity. But notice in the passage in Genesis how, how Moses brings this out in the narrative. This sin meant that the children born to Adam and Eve were not in the likeness of God in the same way as Adam was pre-sin. Notice in the text, Seth was born in the likeness of Adam. He wasn't born in the likeness of God. He was born in the likeness of Adam. And he goes on to emphasize that we are born in the image of his father. Seth is born in the image of his father. God is not mentioned. When Adam sinned, a seismic shift took place that cannot be missed. Every person born in the human race is now in the likeness of our father, Adam. All except one. When you're tempted to think, well, it's not a big deal that Jesus was born of a virgin. Oh, yes, it is. Because if he's born of natural procreative acts, he would be born under sin. And that could never happen. So he was born of a virgin. Why? Because God the Holy Spirit covered her womb and made a new man in the likeness of his father, God. There are two people born in the likeness of God. Adam and Jesus Christ. But all the rest of us were born sinners. Romans, I mean, excuse me, Psalm 51.5 says this. Behold, this is David speaking, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me. David is in the midst of confessing for his willful disobedience with Bathsheba and he finds it necessary to proclaim to God that he is at the root of his natural man, a sinner. He doesn't just get on the surface and say, oh God, you please forgive me. I had sex with someone that's not my wife. That's not what he did. He went to the root of the problem and said, I was born in iniquity. I was conceived in sin. That root then led to Bathsheba. That root then led to the murder of Bathsheba's husband. That root, being born a sinner, leads to all of our sin. You understand what I'm saying? He was born in his standing in, in his standing before God, he was born a sinner because he was born under the headship of Adam. Adam is a sinner, and we are all sinners in Adam. That's what Paul says. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, so death spread to all men because all sinned. Now we read in our passage there. And we see it in 12 and 19. Paul is telling us that our problem is not just a few bad choices. Our problem at the root is that we are born under, listen to this word, 
don't get confused, federal representative, federal headship. Okay? Now, I don't want to give a civics lesson. I know you don't want a civics lesson, but you need it. There's a lot of confusion in our day about what this means. Federal means representative. Okay? So when we have a federal system, that means that the government in Washington is only given power over certain rights that have been listed. All other ones go back to the states and their representatives. See what I'm saying? Not trying to get political, but it'll help you in November if you think that way. We're all represented by somebody. We're all represented by somebody, and that somebody is Adam. He is our federal head. He is our representative. He is a sinner, and because he represents us, we are sinners in him. I know that's offensive to us because we've stepped into this autonomous, individualistic world of freedom. There's still, there's always focused in today's Western evangelical church on the free will man. The free will of man. But the Bible, the Bible doesn't focus on free will at all. Not in regard to man. That's not what it does. Does a man have a will? Yes. But the Bible never calls it free. The Bible never uses that phrase. Our passage is giving the reason why it never says our wills are free. Why are our wills not free? Well, we, in our unredeemed state, have a will that is bound by sin because we are of Adam. You can't choose to please God in your natural self because you in Adam already chose to hate God and to rebel against him. Now, spare me a little. I, I mean, I, I can't help it, okay? I know, just stick with me. There was this old man in Britain named Pelagius. You need to know him. Uh, Pelagius was declared a heretic by the first council of the church, the first council of Ephesus in 431. He was dead already, and they called him a heretic. But that's the way the church works often. You know, they catch up late. Like, that guy's dead. Dig his bones up, burn him. You know, they did that to some people. Not to Pelagius that I know of. But they pronounced him a heretic. Why? Because he looked at this passage and denied it and said every human is born innocent, does not come into the world contaminated and fallen completely in sin, but rather is born innocent and chooses at the age of accountability to sin and then becomes a sinner. So theoretically, though Pelagius said no one's ever done this, theoretically you could have been born and chose not to ever sin and therefore never needed to be saved by Jesus. You would have just been brought under the covenant of works into the kingdom of heaven. Now, he admitted that had never happened, but his theology was wrong, and because it was wrong, he was declared a heretic. And some still view it this way today, or at least they talk as if that's the case. They talk about their sin as if it was a choice they made one day, as if they could have done anything other than sin. And if that's how you go into the war against your sin, you're already in trouble. You know, as a lost person, you think I can just improve myself. Well, you can't. 
Our passage says, and others around the Bible, throughout the Bible, teach us that we are not born innocent. We are born in Adam, and therefore Adam was a sinner, and therefore we are sinners. We didn't choose to be sinners. We choose to sin because we are sinners. Thank God for the clarity of a teacher like Augustine, who Pelagius read and got really angry at. Pelagius didn't like this guy. Why? Because he took our passage today. And he argued exactly like me. The sin of Adam has plunged us into total inability to please God because we're all born sinners in body, soul, will, and emotions. All of us is swept up in the sin of our first father. Why? Because sin came into the world. It came into the human race through one man. And in that one man's disobedience, many, that's to say all of us, all of humankind, are born sinners. We can understand representative leadership, as I said earlier, because we're born in the United States. Our elected representatives are supposed to be voting on our behalf when they cast their votes on the floor of the House of Representatives. That doesn't mean they vote for every single person in mind. They, they vote on our behalf. They stand in our place. They're not voting for themselves, in other words. They're voting for all of us in the district. By this system, we can say that all of us vote on every legislation that comes to the House of Representatives because Mike Rogers votes on it. So in, in reality, we all vote when he votes. When he votes, we all vote. You didn't leave here and go to do that by casting a ballot in Washington. Your representative cast it. How have... How, how have we all voted? We voted because our representative votes. Now, this analogy breaks down, so don't press it too hard because <laughs> there's no recall elections. We don't get to vote and say, well, I don't like Adam, so we'll vote for another one. That's not the way it works. When Adam made his choice at the foot of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, we all were represented in him, and so we all immediately became sinners. There's another way that we're all sinners in Adam. And I want to say it, although it's not the main emphasis of this passage, it's important for us to see it. This is the fact that we were all in Adam, literally, when he sinned. We were all there. We were all there. Hebrews 7 tells us how we were all there. And it's not speaking directly about Adam, but listen to this logic that the writer of Hebrews uses. He's talking about the tithe that was paid by Abraham to Melchizedek. And he says... The descendants of Levi who received the priestly offer have a office, have a commandment in the law to take the tithes from the people, that is, from their brothers, though these also are descended from Abraham. But this man who does not have his descent from them receives the tithe, talking about Melchizedek, from Abraham, and blessed him who had the promise. And then later it says, one might even say that Levi himself who receives tithes paid tithes through Abraham, for he was still in the loins of his ancestor when Melchizedek met him. Levi was four generations after Abraham, and yet the Bible says he paid tithes to Melchizedek. How? Because Abraham paid tithes. In other words, the pollution of our sinful state is partly due to the fact that it's been transmitted to us from our father Abraham but mainly from the fact that he represented us before God in the garden. Both things are true. 
I don't think we have to make a decision. His sin was a vote for all of us, and so we all sin and act on it because our nature is passed down from him sinful. Now, secondly, we are all cursed with death because of the headship of Adam. We see that in verse 12 also. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin. The punishment due because of sin was death. God promised it in the garden. Death came into the world through one man, and it spread to all men through sin. Death is not a naturally occurring event. Death is the most common, unnatural event occurring on a daily, on a minute-by-minute basis. When God created humanity, he was created to live forever. He was created to live in the presence of God, his Father, forever. As a high priest, as a king, as a prophet. And he would spread the garden, the glory of God through the garden over the whole of the earth. This is how the Jews understood Adam's role. Before Christ came, they understood that. And what happened? Adam chose to follow the words of the serpent rather than do his job before God and obey. Because he did, the curse was death. It was death spiritually in that very moment. They're driven out of the garden, and spiritually they now are cut off from God. They can't come to God like they did at one point, as they were intended. And he died physically. We can get to uh, that in the genealogies, right? Every one of them lived 900 years, and then they died. And then this one lived 800 years, and then he died. And those, those generations get shorter as we go because of the pollution of sin, breaking down the genetics of humanity. We're all dying quicker and quicker, and the reason being we're dying physically because of sin. And we're all dead spiritually when we're born. And so all of this is there. Notice in the rest of the passage how Paul focuses on the one man and the one act of sin. Verse 15, many died through one man's trespass. Verse 16, and the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation. Verse 17, for if because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man. Verse 18, therefore as one trespass led to condemnation for all men. Verse 19, for as by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. Paul makes his point clear he is not talking about individuals choosing to sin. He is focused on the fact that we are all sinners because of the one act of Adam in history. We are all sinners because of him. And catch this, you die because of that one act. I'll give you the easiest way to understand this. If this were not true, Infant babies could not die. The reality that babies are born or not in the womb, they die even. They miscarry. Many of you have gone through that. I have buried a daughter who was born and lived nine minutes and died. She had made no choice in her life to sin, but she died because she was under the reign of death because of the sin of her father, Adam. So it's no trivial thing when a child dies. It's the picture that it doesn't take sin acting out in your body to kill you. Sin is at, at, it is acting out in you from the moment you are conceived. 
now. There's a, that brings up a lot of emotion because a lot of us have lost children. And so that's not the point of this sermon. And I know I introduced, it, I introduced an analogy that makes all kinds of things go off in your mind. But let me just sew it up for you quickly by telling you that the Bible assures us in many places that the believer's children are safe with him. You can trust your God with your child because God will take, do what is right. David, when his son died in infancy, said, I cannot, he cannot come to me, but I will go to him. Jesus took the children and put them on his lap and said, let the children come to me. And he blessed them, and the Lord never blessed people that he didn't save. He just didn't do it. He put his hands on them and he blessed them. Also, and they were like children of his disciples that they were coming forward and he's blessing them. And also in 1 Corinthians 7, the Bible clearly says that the parent, the believing parent sanctifies, places a covering over the home. And so God recognizes, God recognizes the faith of the parent and saves the children. Even in their death, he saves them through Christ. It, if not, then we'll, we're left with Nothing but sadness for those children. But because of God's master plan, we know that they are safe with him. But they die because they are human. And humans all die because Adam sinned. And that's the point that we have to, have to cover today. That's, what, that's all we need to know today. Is that in verses 12 through 19 of chapter 5, we see the negative side of the equation. Next week... We're going to look at the solution. So if you feel real depressed, come back next week. I do want to leave you with two things and then an application. You might notice in your passage that in, cha in chapter 5, verse 12, there's a dash at the end. And I know many of us are not grammarians, and so dashes don't mean a lot to us. It's just a fun thing that kids do sometimes, you know, when they're writing but there's actually a purpose for that now an anacoluthan is a technical term and all it means is this when you see that dash that that's what that is and that's all this is what it means in country terms it's a rabbit trail you ever heard somebody say that guy's on a rabbit trail right well that's what Paul does in verse 13 is he gets on a rabbit trail and he chases that rabbit until verse 17 it takes him a while to kill it all right, but he eventually does, and then in verse 18, verse 12 picks back up. So the text actually reads like this. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. That, you can read that, and that would be all the content needed. But he fills in 13 through 17 for a reason. He does it. Paul chases this rabbit intentionally because he wants us to see something about Adam. Look in verse 14. This is the second thing I want you to see. Because if you read the passage straight through, it's easy to get confused. I've dealt with literally tens and twenties and thirties of people that have come to me over the period of time I've been a pastor here confused over this text because they don't understand what he's doing in verses 13 through 17. Why is he doing this? 
Notice what he does in verse 13. He introduces a problem. For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. Why is he talking about this? Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the, trans- the transgression of Adam, who was a type, a, a tupos, a type of the one who was to come. He goes on this rabbit trail for for one main reason, and that is he wants you to understand that Adam is a type of Christ. He wants you to understand that the historical man Adam was created by God with the intent that he would show the world what it looked like to be represented before God and therefore lead to the second representative, Jesus. Now, I know that might cause problems because some of you still read your Bible as if the New Testament didn't happen after the Old Testament. I want to help you with that really quickly. This is so important. Corey bet me I couldn't do this in 60 seconds, and I'm going to do my best, Corey. When God made the world, he created a grand stage so that the whole of the world and all the people who would ever live on it would point negatively or positively to the star. His name is Jesus. In Revelation, it says that Jesus is the lamb slain before the foundation of the world. If you don't understand your Bible like I'm saying you should understand it, you're not going to understand that text. When God created the world, his son was already slain. Which means that God created the world the way he did to put on full display his character in his son and uniquely in the cross. Redemption was on God's mind before he created anything. Redemption was in God's mind before he created anything. So then when he set about creating Adam, he made a prototype of the second Adam. He said, you see Adam in the garden? I want you to see my son. He didn't just do it with Adam. He did it with every single story in your Old Testament. It happened the way it happened because God planned it to happen that way. And he had the saints of old write it down under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit for who? For who? Us. Us, church. Your Old Testament is your history as a person in Christ. So when you read the stories of the old saints and you see them and you look at their lives, the institutions that they carried out in Israel, Israel as a nation, everything points to Jesus. It is historical, it is real, it is factual, and it was created by God before the foundation of the world and played out on the stage of this life. Why? To point us to Jesus. The whole thing is about Jesus. From Genesis to Revelation. Adam is in your Bible mainly because God created a prototype so you could know his son. So when you hear a pastor say, it doesn't matter if Adam was a real person or not. Oh yes it does. When you hear somebody say, It doesn't matter if Jonah was real. Maybe he was swallowed by a fictitious fish in some fairy tale. Oh, no. Jonah was swallowed by a real fish 
and he was a real man. And God put him on the stage so we could see Jesus. And Jesus tells us that, doesn't he? He said, you ask for a sign, I'll give you no sign except the sign of Jonah, who was in the belly of the fish three days, and so will the Son of Man be in the earth for three days. What did Jesus, what's Jesus saying? Jonah happened, and then Jesus isn't reading back into it. Jesus is saying, Jonah happened so you could see me. We're not reading back into the Old Testament when we say these things. This is how you understand the Old Testament. You should run to your Bible, pick it up, and read Numbers. I, I, yesterday I read Exodus and Numbers. I woke up in the morning, I read Exodus and Numbers. With this thought in mind, and I'm not, I, now I'm going to go 19 minutes, and I can't because it's hot and they're ready to go home. But listen to me. My soul was fed. Why? Not because I read about people wandering around in the wilderness and then some of them sinning and some of them dying and all this. Because I saw Christ everywhere. In the mediation of Moses. You ever seen him arguing with God? You know, I don't know what I'm talking about. And God's saying, I'm going to kill everybody. And Moses says, don't kill them, Lord. He's a mediator of the old covenant like Christ is the mediator of the New Testament covenant. And he is interceding for his people. But look, he's not a perfect mediator because later when they messed up and they were wandering in the desert and the rock was there and God said, speak to the rock and water will come forth, he got angry at God because God had made him lead these stiff-necked people. And his anger against God, just like the people he was represented, caused him to strike the rock. And God said, you will die in the wilderness and not go in because you struck me. I'm not reading that into it. It's what Paul said. The rock that followed him in the desert was Christ. Moses literally, as the mediator, struck Jesus out of anger because he was having to lead these stiff-necked people. And that's just two examples of a whole book, 39 books, that point to Jesus. So why did Paul do verse 13, 14, 15, 16, 17? So we could see that this is the way we read our Old Testament. This is how Paul read his Old Testament. This is how Paul treated the Bible. Not as a fictitious book. Not as a book about strange stories that ah, can find some meaning over here. No, he read them looking through the cross. And said, that is my Savior back there. Being pictured for me. Always read your Bible this way. This is what Paul's doing. And we'll get to it more next week. But the typology we see in the Bible is not read in by the pastors. The Bible is a book of typology. Historical realities meant to point to Jesus. That's what it means. So, we're at the end of this sermon. And I did decent on that little episode. I ran that rabbit trail. But it's necessary because it's going to help us next week. So you're sitting here and you say, I am a sinner. You're not in Christ. I'm a sinner. Or you're in Christ and you're saying, I still deal with sin. What do I want you to think when you leave today? Well, this is what I want you to know. If I'm born a sinner, and this is due to being under the headship of Adam, then what hope do I have? What hope do I have? Is the hope found in me getting a little better, making a better choice, doing the right thing in certain situations? No, not at all. Not at all. There's no hope in that. Where is my hope? Well, Paul says this. The free gift, in verse 15, the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God. And the free gift by the grace of that one man 
Jesus Christ abounded for many. Your hope is in a new representative church. Your hope in your fight against indwelling sin, Christian, is Jesus Christ. Your hope, lost man, woman, child, to get out of the grip of sin is not improving yourself, but dying to self and calling on Jesus as your Savior. That's the only hope we have. Our besetting sins are only going to go away, Christian. They're only going to go away after the miracle of the new birth. This new man begins to fight against the besetting sin through the power of the Holy Spirit in the person of Jesus Christ. This is our hope, church, that we have moved from Adam to Christ. A standing as a sinner to a standing of righteousness. Let's pray. Father, as we close our time in your word, and we prepare to go out from this place by singing a hymn and we're doing uh, a blessing over the congregation. I know that this text is not easy. This is a difficult text. I'm sure it's difficult even now for some. But Father, I ask that you would help us understand. Give us the understanding, complete understanding today, tomorrow, and days to come that Christ is our representative if we are in him. He is our hope. He holds us fast. It's in his great name we pray. Amen. Let's sing together. Stand and sing.